This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. Twelve thirty to two thirty. Okay. So, a couple of things. The midterm will be this coming Thursday. Uh, open book and notes. The coverage will be on what we did through last lecture, which were more or less these topics. Obviously, chapters 6, 7, and 8 are the majority of what we touched on. Uh, 9 and 10, we just did a very quick overview. I also want to say, because of the coming midterm, a couple of changes in office hours. Uh, Spencer will have extended office hours on Wednesday from 12.30 to 2.30. And I've both shifted and slightly expanded my office hours on Thursday. They'll be from 10 to 11.15, since I figure immediately before the exam is probably a little close for people. So, so I hope this will work better. Uh, so again, there's a sample midterm on the web page. Uh, also, there's problem set three, which is more or less study problems. The solutions to problem set three are also available. Uh, also, if you haven't yet picked up graded problem set one and two, they're up here. You can get them after class. Uh, for the TV student, that should be getting to you by email later today. Okay. So. More just generally, the, the sample midterm should be reasonably representative in terms of question type. And the focus will be on things that we've done in class or that were on the homeworks. Okay. Yeah. What was the average for homework two? What was the average for over homework two? 85. 85. And that was out of 100? Is that right? Yeah, 85 out of 100. So. so. So, yeah, so I think both, I hope that people are improving in their ability to do these, but this was also probably a less challenging uh, homework than the first one. Part one of the goals of the first homework was to weed out people who are not yet ready for the class, so put everyone on notice. Okay. Now, if you could survive that one, you should be ready for the class. Okay, so as I said, um, I would take questions on either the topics we've covered to date or the uh, sample, well, problem set three or the sample homework, sample midterm. I guess people have, haven't had much time to digest the graded problem set twos yet, but you did get the solutions earlier.
thing. Everybody's all set. Okay, if not, I'll uh, continue on. And again, we will have, um, I guess, office hours today, tomorrow, and Thursday for those who want to come up with questions in the meantime. Okay. All right, so last time we started talking about these special cases, and in particular, we were talking about this problem discussed in 10.2 which was for independent set. Okay, so independent set is a collection of vertices such that no two that we choose are connected by an edge. And I'll remind you that the setting we were talking about last time was in one way very specialized, the graph was a tree, and this in particular had the special property that we can always find a leaf. Okay, so sort of adding leaves to an independent set is always a good thing. Okay, whether there's a whether the graph is a tree or not, but in a tree, if you choose a leaf and then delete it and its neighbor, you can always continue and find another leaf. Okay, and in general, graph there may be no leaves. Okay. And it's probably worthwhile to talk about what we mean. So first of all, let's remind people that this is always an undirected graph okay. that our notion of independent set is only well defined for undirected graphs okay. and a tree is just a graph that's connected so there's a path between every pair and there's no cycle in the graph. Any graph that has those two properties is a tree. And you may take a little bit of thinking about it, but this corresponds to one's natural notion of a tree. Uh, we can generalize that, and we talked about that last time. A forest is a collection of trees, and in particular, it just means we drop the connected and it just means it's a set of vertices with no cycles. It's a graph with no cycles as a forest. Okay. And it will then always be the connected components of it will be the individual trees in the forest. Okay. And that notion, formally, we say that a leaf is any node with either 0 or 1 neighbor. So as long as the node has either no neighbors or at most one neighbor, we consider it to be a leaf. And that's why it's always good to add these to an independent set. Okay. Right. 
Okay. So that was the case for a simple setting where we could solve it just greedily by adding leaves. But we then generalized it to the case where vertices had weights. Okay. And now what we want is a maximum weight independent set. Okay. And now things got a little bit more complicated since in terms of our tree, if we had a vertex U, with children v1, v2, up to vk. Okay, so notice that each of these are leaves. They only have one neighbor, u. u is not a leaf. It has multiple neighbors. Okay. So in this, we could do one of two things. Okay, we could either choose u, which gets us weight w of u, or we can use v1 to vk, and that gets us the summation sorry, of their weights. So now we said that there was an easy case. The easy case is when this sum is bigger than the weight of u. Okay, so if this sum is bigger than the weight of u, what should I do? Choose the sum. Yeah, choose the leaves. And as in the previous case, this is always a good choice because, in a sense, choosing these gives us more weight and gives us more flexibility because these only eliminate u, while u in general will be connected to other things. So, actually, it's a tree. Only one other thing, if it really looks like this. Okay. But u is connected to something else. So choosing it may restrict our other options. Okay, So that's the intuition. But if the weight of u is bigger than this, then either choice might be right myopically. Because okay. choosing u is better because it gets you more weight. Choosing the leaves is better because it gives you more future flexibility. Okay. Right. Okay, everyone, everyone clear on that, where we are, where we're going to, how to actually solve it? Okay. Yeah? Uh, is it possible for, I mean, are, are we assuming like a, an, an area tree, like, uh, I mean, it, those are all vertices, there's no way any of them could be other internal nodes, all the... Yeah, so, so as I said, that the reason that I've drawn this picture is that these are the things attached to you that are leaves, okay, that have no other attachments. Now, as I indicated here, you could yeah. be attached to something else, okay. Um, and I guess in 
principle, you could also have actually more than one other attachment. If, if like one of its children, like in turn, had maybe you know wasn't a leaf. Well, so the so only one other thing. So the thing is, is that suppose that U is attached to X, and it's also attached to Y. Then there's the issue of yeah, well, I guess no. Actually, I guess it could have this, where this is attached also to Z, okay, and this is attached to A. So yeah, it could look something like this, okay, where U has these other attachments. Neither of these are leaves, since they're attached to other things as well. But this is indeed a tree. So the idea of how we're going to make this decision in the harder case of whether to use W or all, whether to use U or all its children, okay, is we're going to use a dynamic programming approach. Okay, so you can see part of the reason why we started with dynamic programming. It's a universal enough thing that it's going to crop up in other cases as well. Okay. And the idea is that what we're going to have to do is compute two things associated with a vertex. So I'm going to compute opt sub n of a vertex u, which is going to represent the following. Oh, so actually, one other thing, maybe, sorry, before I go into this. Um, the definition of a tree does not include a root. So for the purposes of doing the dynamic programming, we're going to pick an arbitrary root and at least conceptually direct all the edges away from that root. Okay. So for example, in lost my in this one, if I were to If I were to take this and pick, say, x as the root, then what I would view the tree is x pointing to a to u. And now, since I'm into u, it would have arcs to y, vk. V1 and okay. so this is the the tree rooted at X. Okay. I got that. Okay. So now, having yeah. Sorry, you found arrows. Is a rooted tree directed? Well, I'm saying we. That's why I said we view it as directed, and we view it as directed in the sense that now there's a natural notion of a subtree rooted at a node. So here, the subtree rooted at U consists of this. 
Right, and we could have rooted at any node. It's just a, it's similar to what happens in, um, say, in the subset sum problem, where we arbitrarily order the items so that we can process them in a consistent way. So here we arbitrarily root the tree, and we use these this rooted direction just as to giving us a structure in order to process the nodes in the right order. Okay, but it still has no effect on our meaning of what an independent set is. Okay. So it's just a way of processing it. Okay. So now what we're going to say then is that opt-in of u, okay, for a general node, u is simply the optimal cost of an independent set for the subtree rooted at u, okay, where u is in the set. Okay. So here, the subtree rooted at u is this collection of nodes. So it's saying, just consider these nodes. Ignore the rest of the graph. And we say, if I make the decision that u is put in the solution, then I want the optimal cost that uses u. Okay. And there's a symmetric one for opt out of u. That's just the optimal cost of finding an independent set on the subtree you rooted at u, where we don't include u in the solution set. Okay, so remember, whatever the solution is, either it includes u or it doesn't. So we can also talk about opt of u, which is the minimum. of these two values, since we have to do one or the other. Okay, so remember that rooting the tree means that there's a well-defined set of vertices. Okay, so we can think of the problem restricted to those vertices, and we have those two options. Uh, sorry, yes, Max. Thank you. Yes, we're now. So, yeah, thank you. Yes. Since I'm trying to find a maximum white independent set. Thanks. Before I deferred that by uh, just using optimal cost. Okay, and the basic idea is that before I process a node, I'm going to have computed these values for all of its children. So for example, before I computed this for u, I would have computed it for v1 through vk and y. And you can do that easily by processing the nodes in what's called post order. So start at the leaves and work your way up, in essence. So now, getting started, so let's move over to here. 
So getting started is easy if u is a leaf, right, opt in of u is the weight of u, right, and I'll also comment that that's actually also always opt of u for a leaf, since what's opt out of a leaf, yeah, zero. So at least assuming positive weights, and in fact, if you have negative weights, it's never a good idea to include things in an independent set. So we can kind of assume that we only have positive weights. Okay, so that's for the leaf case. And in general, let's consider for one that has children. So let's say we have the general case where um, actually to not clash with my example, let's suppose that I have a vertex B with children C1 through C2 up through CK. And I want to emphasize that in general, these are not leaves. They're just children of B. Okay, so we could have subtrees below them, just as in our example, Y is a child of U but is not itself a leaf. Okay? All right. So we have this situation, and I want to know what's opt. Sorry. So let's say opt in of B. Okay, so I'll give you the easy part. If you do opt in of B, you get the weight of B. Okay. And what about for its children? Okay, yeah, I have to exclude each of the children. So I get the summation, I equals 1 to k, opt out of c sub i. Okay, so for each of these, I'll say I can't use u, so what's the best I can do for this subtree given that u can't be included? And notice that the key thing about a tree is that each of these subproblems is independent. Which things we choose in this subtree has no impact on the others, because there's no edges connecting them within between the subtrees. Okay, so that's the independence. Okay, so that's opt-in. How about opt-out? So it's the summation, but now for these, we could include them, but it may not be best to do so, because if we include them, we can't include their immediate descendants. So it's i equals 1 to k opt of c sub i. So it says do whatever you want with these, 
whatever works best. Everyone clear? So if you just, and as long as I had the opt-out and the opt-values for all the children, computing these two things is easy. And of course, having computed these, it's easy to compute opt of B, which is the maximum of these two. I think, I'm not sure I remember right, I think the book may not explicitly compute this. I think they may compute it as they need it rather than defining it as a separate thing. But I think it's a little cleaner to do it this way. Okay, so then there's just a straightforward thing. If you process the tree in post order, whenever you're processing a vertex B, you have already got all its children, so it's straightforward. And in fact, the runtime for this is very efficient because the runtime is actually linear. And that's because of the special properties of a tree that the work for this is proportional to the number of arcs leaving B. And in a tree, the total number of arcs is roughly the number of nodes in the graph because of the no cycle rule restriction. So you get, in fact, a dramatic change in independent set. Independent set in general is NP hard. For trees, not only is it easy for the unweighted case, it's easy for the weighted case and actually solvable in time, linear in the size of the graph. And so again, I want to sort of emphasize this um, big difference that it can make depending on what your data really looks like. Okay, any questions on this? Okay, so if you recall what I talked about uh, hard problems, we said we could deal with them by relaxing one of various properties. Okay. And what we're going to be spending time on next for a while is what's discussed in Chapter 11, which is approximation algorithms. And the idea here is that it's often hard to get exactly the best answer, but it may be not so hard to get something that's close to the best answer. Okay. And one of the things to keep in mind is that if a problem A 
is NP hard, that doesn't by itself say, if you want to then say, can we get close to the best for A? The NP hardness of A doesn't in and of itself tell us much about the answer to this question. Okay. And in fact, how hard it is to get close to the optimum varies dramatically okay, depending on the particular problem. Some of them, it's pretty easy to get very close. For others, it's actually provably hard, or at least as hard as, as you know, the solving it exactly to get even moderately close. Okay. Yeah. They're all reducible. So that's a good question. So he said, so why is there this big difference if they're all reducible to each other? And the answer is that the reduction holds for exact answers. If you have an approximate answer, it may the reduction does not necessarily preserve closeness to the right answer. So maybe maybe illustrate that a little bit more crisply. Um, in some other settings. So, so let me now, so this is material in chapter 11, but I'm actually going to start by talking about a couple things that the book doesn't do explicitly, because I think that they're useful. Um, and actually, maybe after I'm, when I'm doing this, I think I'll give a, maybe a more precise answer to the reduction question as well. Okay, so the first thing is sort of what we mean by an approximation algorithm. So there's, there's, a couple of different types of things. There's some algorithms that people find for NP-hard problems that I would say are more what I call heuristics as opposed to approximation algorithms. And typically the difference is that in a heuristic, you have some strategy that seems attractive for constructing a good solution. But you can't necessarily prove how well it's going to perform. For the approximation algorithms we're going to discuss, we're going to actually be able to prove that they always come within some fraction of the best solution. So. So we'll be able to say something more precise about them. So in particular, to talk about this more precisely, let's move over to here. Let me do, do a uh, little bit of notion. So suppose that we say that for an input i, we can let optivi correspond to the best cost 
for that input? So, for example, if I were an independent set problem, it would be the maximum size independent set. Okay. If I were a shortest path problem, it would be the length of the shortest path. Okay. Right. And what we're going to say is that for an algorithm, okay, so now we're talking about an algorithm, not a problem. For an algorithm, A, okay, so this is an algorithm that's presumably trying to find approximate solutions, we'll let A of I be the cost of the solution found for input I. And now, roughly speaking, we're going to compare how our algorithm does by comparing A of i to opt of i. And let me just comment that there's a number of ways of doing this okay, that are similar in form. So the typical thing is to want to take a ratio of these two things. Now, unfortunately, what the ratio looks like is different depending on whether it's a minimization or a maximization problem. Okay? If it's a minimization problem, then opt of i is always equal to or less than a of i. Okay? Right? So if we're trying to minimize, then right. Opt of i is always equal to or less than a of i. So a natural thing to do is to consider a of i divided by opt of i. And a typical thing might be to be able to prove, say, okay, say that a of i over opt of i is, say, equal to or less than 2 for all i. That whatever the input is, our algorithm never gives a solution that's more than twice the best one. Okay. So this is the kind of thing you might do. How do you know opt of i? Okay, so that's a good question. Of course, we started by saying it's a hard problem. So we say, how do you um, know what opt of i is? And the answer is, of course, that in general you don't. So what we instead use is rather than opt of i is some bound on opt of i. So often, even if we don't know what opt of i is, we can say that opt of i must be equal to or greater than something. So even though we don't know how small we can make it, okay, so we can so typically we, we show that opt of i is equal to or greater than some bound b. And then what we really show is that A of i over B 
is equal to or greater than 2. Okay, so that, okay, because B is something we can talk about. Okay. And let me make this less abstract by talking about a simple approximation algorithm. Some of you may have seen it, but it fits well with stuff we've done. It's not in this textbook. It's in the Corman, Lyserson, and Rivest algorithms book, which is why some may have seen it. Okay, but it, it's a simple algorithm, and it, it's worth exploring. It has some nice things. Okay, so this is for vertex cover. Okay, and again, let me emphasize that this is not in our book. It is in the Corman Weiserson Revest book in their first example of approximation algorithms. That's the big green one. Big well, I think you usually think of it as white, but right. you the may have yeah. you may have some green on it now, depending on which version you see. It's definitely big. All right, so the idea, so this is actually what seems almost a, a brain dead algorithm. Okay, so remember, vertex cover, we want to find a minimum size set of vertices that cover all the edges. Okay. So initially, um, our cover is empty, and then we simply repeat the following. Um, Pick an edge UV in the edge set E. Okay. Arbitrary edge. And what I'm going to do then is add U and V to the cover C. Okay. So remember, if this is an edge, Somebody has to cover it, and I'm going to make doubly sure it's covered. I'm going to use both endpoints. And what I'm then going to do is delete um, UV and all other edges. UX and YV in E. So basically, any other edge that touches U or touches V, okay, all of these edges are now covered. So I'm going to get rid of all of them. So roughly speaking, what E is going to contain is the currently uncovered edges. Okay. And I'm going to repeat, do this until E is empty. When there's no uncovered edges left, I'm done. Okay. So a very simple algorithm. 
And I hope it's pretty clear that it works, okay, that I only delete edges when I've put in vertices that cover them, and I only quit when there are no edges left in the graph. And it, you, know, you, can, you can implement this easily. Let me just comment that this allows you to pick the edge completely arbitrarily. Okay? If you wanted to be smart, you might do something like the edge whose endpoints have the highest degree. Okay? That actually doesn't, in the worst case, particularly improve the performance. But okay. All right. OK, so we'll say that this is my algorithm A. And A of I, where I is some graph, G is just the number of vertices in the final cover C. And therefore, A of I over opt of I is just the number of vertices I use compared to the number of vertices in the minimum vertex covered. Okay, so the same kind of formulation. And what I'm going to prove is that this is, in fact, equal to or less than 2. OK. So the way I'm going to do this, again, sort of as I promised, is by talking not about opt directly, but a lower bound on opt. So consider, let's describe what happens when the algorithm runs. So let's let um, u1 v1 be the first edge taken, u2, v2 be the second edge taken by our algorithm, and finally, uk, vk. Okay. So these vertices are what are in my final cover C, and therefore, a of i is going to be 2k. Okay, so my algorithm, when it runs, is going to put 2k vertices into its solution associated with these k edges. Okay. Now, the key thing is that these k edges form a matching. If you think about it, because of the way the algorithm works, when I pick this edge, I remove everything that touches it, either endpoint. So each subsequent edge is to brand new vertices. Okay. So this corresponds to a matching of size k. And if you may recall, we discussed this earlier that a vertex cover has to be at least as large as any matching. Okay, because more, more intuitively, 
these k edges have to be covered by somebody. So one of the endpoints of each of these k edges has to be in the cover. So what that tells us is then I don't know what Optivi is, but I know it's at least k. So therefore, A of I over Optivi is equal to or less than 2k. Maybe a little bit more intuitive if you look at it this way. A of I is equal to 2K. Okay. Well, we said that opt of I is equal to or less than K, so this is equal to or less than 2 times. I'm sorry, not 2K. So just replacing K by Optivi. Okay. All right. So that sort of gets at a little bit what what you were saying. Okay. Now, maybe slightly getting back to the question there when you talked about reductions and why they don't preserve them. Um, the book talks about how one way in which you can show that <coughs> vertex cover is or sorry, independent set is hard is by using verte um, vertex cover. Okay. And there is a thing that if you take the complement of a vertex cover, you get an independent set. Okay. But the sizes of those two things are quite different. So therefore, the ratios don't carry forward in, this, in a nice way. Because of this, this thing, so um, that sort of um, is maybe part of the answer. Okay. All right. So I said. So this illustrates this this idea in a very simple setting. Um, what I now want to do is talk about the first example that the book does, which is in eleven point one. And this is a problem in scheduling. And we've sort of seen that scheduling provides us with a rich source of uh, different problems. So in this case, the input I consists of n jobs to be scheduled, and each of them has a processing time T sub i. And we want to schedule them on M identical processors or machines. And we want to do this with no preemptions. 
So once you start running a job, you have to run it to completion on that same machine. You can't share it between multiple machines. Uh, on the plus side, unlike some of the harder problems we talked about before, there are no release times or deadlines. Okay. You're, what you're just trying to do is to minimize the maximum load on any machine. So what you can think of is that if you have, say, three machines and your jobs had running time, say, five, eight, two, eleven, nine, six, and ten, then a simple strategy that the book proposes is the following. You first schedule, so these are machines, one, two, and three. Five gets put on machine one. Uh, then eight on machine two. And the one of length two on machine three. Now for 11, you put it on the machine that has the current lightest load, which would be machine three. So you'd have 11, and the total load on this would be up to 13. Then this nine would go here, getting this up to 14. Six would go here, also getting this up to 14 and 10 would go here, giving you a final load of 23. Okay, so I've assigned the task to these three machines. 23 is the value of my solution okay, for this scheme. Okay, so if this is my algorithm A, A of I is 23 for this particular input. Is everyone clear on the strategy? Just for each machine, we keep track of its current finish time, and the new, the next task goes on whichever machine has the current smallest finish time. Okay. All right. And again, what I want to show is that in all cases, A of I over Optivi is at most two. So as before, we can arrange things so that um, these give us at most 100% um, error. All right, so we saw before that the way to tackle these is to get some bound on Optivi. So in fact, for this, 
we're going to use two bounds on, on OptiVi. So one bound is the following. Optivi is equal to or greater than the maximum of the individual job times. Whatever the biggest single job is, it has to go on some machine, so you can't finish any earlier than that. And the other one is that OptiVi is also equal to or greater than the summation of the T sub i's. That's sum divided by m. And in fact, actually, that's sum rounded up, though we won't need to use that, at least if these are. I should say, actually, the rounded up is only if these are integers. Actually, the argument I'm giving does not require the T sub i's to be integers. Okay. These two things are true as long as the numbers are uh, positive. Okay. Why would it screw things up if somehow we could have negative T sub i's? Sorry? Well, you go backwards in time. That's why it might not be reasonable to allow it. but. If we did somehow, you know, you know, maybe it means that adding this to a machine makes it run faster so that it actually reduces the time of jobs on it. It's not so unrealistic, right? Yeah, it might not be. But what I was saying actually was that what problems would it cause with the things we've said about the problem? Which statement? Uh, max, the yeah, the first statement is no longer true because now you could finish earlier than the maximum time by pairing it with some negative value. Okay. Interestingly, this one is still true. Okay, so it screws up this, but not this. Right, but anyway, we will assume that the T sub i's are equal to or greater than zero. Which, as I said, at least in the normal case, makes sense. Okay, is everyone clear about this? This is sort of saying that the maximum has to be at least the average. Okay. All right. Okay. So now, to do this, we'll consider the following. So, we've got those bounds, and now, suppose we run our algorithm A. And suppose that machine I has the maximum load, which will denote as M sub I. Okay, so M sub I is, which will be equal to A of I. So this is the machine that, and what I want to consider is, let's let job J be the last one added to machine I, 
there's at least one job on this machine, so there's some last one added. And let me let m prime sub i be the load just before you added task j. Okay. So let's think about what does this situation look like. I've got machine i, and I had this much load on it. At the time, I added job t sub j that got me up to m sub i prime plus t sub j. And this ends up being the most at the end. Okay. Everyone clear? The algorithm was running. And this is not necessarily the last job added. Okay. There may be other ones added later. Okay. But this is the one that caused the highest load. Okay. All right. So my final value, A of i, okay, and this is m sub i, the final load on machine i. And it consists of two pieces. And what I'm going to do is to use those two equations I just got to show that each of these is equal to or less than opt of i. And in fact, they'll correspond to it. So certainly, Tj is, of course, equal to or less than the max is equal to or less than opt of i. Right. So that's easy. Okay. Now, how about mi prime? Okay, the load on this machine. Okay. So I'll claim that this is equal to or less than the summation of the Tj's over m. In fact, actually, it's I'll claim strictly less than it. Okay. So why is this true? Because otherwise, you're going to add Tj to some other machines. OK, yeah. So why did I add Tj to machine i? Because mi prime was the smallest value at that time. Well, certainly, even after I've added everything, the smallest machine has a load at most the average. And this is not even quite at the end. So at this point, I can be sure that this is equal to or less than the average. Okay? And I want to notice that this is the first time we've done something that's always crucial 
to a correct argument of this sort, which is that we use the way the algorithm runs. I mean, up until this point, we didn't really in any way make use of the fact that the algorithm was putting things on the least loaded machine. Right? Nothing we've done so far had anything to do with that. So if your, if your argument doesn't critically use the way the algorithm runs, okay, its properties, it can't really be a good proof. So that's the key thing, is that we add it to the small, lightest loaded machine, and the lightest load has to be at most the average. So therefore, this is also equal to or less than Octavi. And if the total is at most the two things, two things that are each at most Octavi, that says that M sub I is equal to or less than Octavi plus Octavi, or two Octavi. And actually, we can, again, say strictly less because this is strictly less. All right. Okay. All right. So M sub i is these two things. Each of them individually is um, equal to or less than those. Okay, now I don't want you to draw a false conclusion from these two examples. Namely, the ratio is not always two. <laughs> and to see that, we'll actually, let's go back over to here. We will improve this algorithm by making it be a little bit smarter. Okay. And actually, all we're going to have to do is to take my numbers and sort them so that they're in decreasing order. Okay. So we're going to redo this so it's 11, 10, 9, 8, 6, 5, 2, and then run the same algorithm. So we didn't have to make the algorithm much different. And basically, we're going to use sort of the same argument as we just did. But before doing the same sort of thing, we had this final job, TJ, that was added. And we used before that tj was equal to or less than the max of the ti's, and that was equal to or less than octavi. Okay. What we're going to do now instead, so that was when the, when the tasks were in any order. Right? Now we've got things at the end that are small. So we can hope that the things that we are adding on that make us go over okay, is not too bad. Okay. So in fact, what I'm now going to do 
is to argue that it's equal to or less than optivi over 2. So, so let's see. So how am I going to argue that the one that I add that makes my machine too big is at most half the optimum? Well, so let's look at the following things. So let's consider a couple things. What well, I'll claim two things. One thing is that the first n jobs go on machines, I'm sorry, first M jobs go on machines 1, 2, up to M. So, so certainly, actually, if n is equal to or less than m, it's optimal. Right? So the only interesting case, so it's only interesting if n is strictly greater than m. And in fact, actually, even if it's like m plus 1, it's not very interesting. So the key thing is that um, it must be the case that one of two things, either one in our picture over there, either j is bigger than m, okay, or what else? What would it mean if j, the last job added to the biggest machine, was among the first m? Yeah. It was the only job added to that machine. It was the only job added to that machine, which means that it must be the maximum size job, right? Because every other task is on some machine, right? So it's or two that. Um, J is equal to the maximum, and it's the only job on machine I, which in fact then means that our algorithm is optimal. Because okay. if it achieves the finish time of the biggest job, you can't do better than that. Okay, so the main thing is that the normal case is that we have more than m jobs, and the machine with the biggest height, right, really has something else, and then it has job j, which has tj. So that's a normal thing. And in this case, I'll claim that Optivi 
is equal to or greater than 2tj. Or alternately, t sub j is equal to or less than opt of i over 2. Okay, so why, why do I get this? Because if all the machines have some job on them, then uh, let's say let's say for instance it's just they all have one job on them. Then the very last one, even if it's the same weight as all the previous jobs, can't be greater than all the previous jobs. So it can't do more than double the load on a machine. Right. So well, so we have to be a little bit careful about distinguishing the optimum solution from what our algorithm does. Well, you, you, okay. Right. Right. That's true. So I mean, we're talking here about the optimum. Right. So if you have, if you have in, in the case that all the processes have the same time, they, they take the same amount of time, if it's an ordered list, right, uh, then we just have, and they all have at least one on them, then you can't do more than double the, double the amount of time, right, which is the 2TJ. Yeah. So what we've argued is, is that J is greater than M. Yeah. So we have those, so we have M plus one jobs each of which are of size tj or bigger. Right. Okay. So what we've concluded is we have from this that we must have m plus 1 jobs equal to or greater than tj. That follows from the fact that j is greater than m, and the jobs are in decreasing order. Right. So some machine must have two jobs of the first m plus 1, right? However, I assign the first, the small, the largest m plus 1 jobs, okay, first m plus 1 means Right. Clearly, however I assign the first m plus 1 jobs, some machine gets at least two of them. So that, since those two jobs are each as big as tj, that machine has at least two tj load. Therefore, the optimum must have at least that. So going back to this, so what we got is we got that tj is at most opt i over 2. Okay. So now going back to here, we said, so we still have this picture. Okay. And it's the load on the smallest machine at the time I added job j plus tj. So this contributes at most opt of i, and this now contributes at most opt of i over 2. So therefore, since we now have that A of I is equal to or less than opt of I plus opt of I over 2, that's opt of I times 3 halves. 
So we have at most a 50% error. Okay. So basically, by being a bit smarter and sorting the tasks, we were able to reduce the error from 100% in the worst case to 50% in the worst case. So I want you to also notice that this is still a pretty simple and fast algorithm. And in fact, uh, reminding you of your uh, data structures classes, it's a fairly straightforward matter to keep track of the loads on the machines and update the load when you add a new task and still repeatedly find the smallest load machine in logarithmic time. Okay, so you can make this all run in n log n time. I mean, aren't you just guaranteed that the, the mth machine will have the smallest load after you do the first m jobs? Yes, you, after you do the first m, the last machine will have the smallest load. But as you run, right, right. right, you're generally going to be putting then the m plus first task on that m machine. So that will only be true briefly. And after that, it may shift back and forth arbitrarily. Okay. Right. OK, um, I don't want to start a um, new topic with uh, just a few minutes left, and particularly with the midterm coming up. We will continue with more of these. Maybe I'll just mention. There is a kind of dual problem to this, which is the bin packing problem, which is where you also have items that you want to assign. But now there's a limit to how many, to what the total load can be. But in compensation, you can add additional machines. And now the goal is to assign all tasks to machines such that the load is no more than some amount. So imagine there is now a common deadline, and to use as few machines as possible. Okay. And in fact, a very similar strategy to this is quite effective. Okay. So again, always add something to the minimum load um, machine. And if there's no machine that wouldn't take you past the deadline, then add a new machine and start adding things to that one. Okay. So this, but that's, that's a different sort of problem. Okay. Okay. So, okay, why don't we break for now? Again, if you didn't pick up problems, the grade problem sets one or two, they're both up here. And, uh, The preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.